It's good to, to be with you and uh, to be back, uh, Andre and I, and we, we, took a, we took a little little trip down to Florida this past week, and it was a pretty good trip. I didn't do much except eat and, uh, and kind of lay around, and you know, I, I was telling some folks, for whatever reason, I mean, usually my phone's blowing up all the time. I get all kinds of calls and texts, and I really got so few calls and so few texts. It was good in one, in one sense, but to be honest with you, I was like, man, I miss people. Like, I, I kind of like it when people call me and text me. You know, we're, we're fickle people as human beings, isn't it? When we're getting a lot of calls, we're like, man, I get too many calls, and then when we don't, we start missing people. So I miss you guys. I'm glad to be back, and I just want to say what an honor and privilege it is to to be a pastor here and to get to, to just worship the Lord with you guys. We're in this thing together, and I'm just glad to have you guys as friends and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But I wanted to start off this year with a, with a new sermon series called The Way, and I wanted to talk about becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. Because when you start a new year, I mean, I don't know about you, but everybody starts thinking, if you're like me, I think most people do. People set goals. They start saying, man, I'd like to do this. I, you know, I'd like to lose my love handles in about two weeks. You know what I'm talking about? Even though it's probably not going to happen, is it? I mean, you got to be dedicated to lose those suckers. I mean, so, so there's, there's things that we think about. We set goals. We think, man, this is the year I'm going to do this. This is the year I'm going to do that. And in all reality, unless, unless the Lord just gives us some kind of prophetic insight, we got no idea what's coming up this year. There are very few things that we know of for certain, but we do know that God is good. We do know that He's called us to follow Him. And I believe that the answer to true and lasting joy and true and lasting transformation is to become a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. Not simply be a Christian, but understand what Jesus has called us to as disciples. Because here's the thing, you know, when we were, when we were down in Florida, Andrea, she likes to shop. How many of you women, you like to shop? As one philosopher said, women be shopping. And, and we know that. That's true. So, and when we go shopping, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, I bought a pair of sweatpants down there, and we went in there, and I was like, Andre, I don't know if I need them or not. Oh, you need them. Them right there is 50% off. They're 50% off. That's still 50 bucks. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I did, even when things are discounted, it's not like, but it, we feel good about discounts, which will actually make us pay a high price just because we believe there was a discount. I mean, we like discounts, man. And, and, and the problem with that, like we, we've got discounts to the point where we have Black Friday and we go shopping and we do all of these things and, and we're after all of these things. And, and then you got Cyber Monday now, which is a lot better than Black Friday because you get killed on Black Friday. <laughs> but Cyber Monday is safe. You know what I'm talking about? Just from the comfort of your own phone, you can get on there and, and buy some stuff and get it delivered to you and it's all good. And so we love discounts, we love consumerism, but the problem with that is oftentimes what I have found, even in my own personal life, is I want to transplant the discount Cyber Monday lifestyle and mentality into my relationship with Jesus. I want something quick, I want a, a discount, I want the irreducible minimum. What's the least I can do, Jesus, for you to move in my life? What's the least I can do for me to still be a Christian? Y'all know people who do that. It's like, it's like, what can I just get? Like, if I go to church once a month, you know what I'm saying, and read my Bible maybe like one time this year, does it, can I still be a Christian and get by with all this stuff? Can I still keep these negative, sinful habits in my life that are actually destroying me and destroying my family? Can I keep this and still be a Christian? And we want the irreducible minimum of what we can get by with and still be a Christian. 
We want discount relationship with Jesus. And you cannot transfer that mentality over into what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It just doesn't work. See, what Jesus has given us is not just this. And here's the thing about uh, Christianity in America is we've come into a mindset where it's basically like, hey, here's what Christianity is. You get saved by coming to an altar, saying a prayer. And once you're saved and baptized, all you got to do is show up at church on occasion and it's good. You're a Christian. And we just keep on going. But see, Jesus did not call that. He never, even, he never even put that into language one time. He didn't really even talk about people getting saved unless they encountered him in a moment of time to experience forgiveness and healing in that moment. He would say, woman, your faith has saved you and she would be healed. But other than that, when he called people, he didn't preach a gospel message and say, say this prayer and you'll go to heaven when you die. He preached a message and said, now follow me into a way of life and a lifestyle by which you will be transformed and become like me. And this is a lifestyle. This is not something that happens in an altar in a moment of time. This is something that is ever increasing as you become more and more like Christ until he returns. You see him face to face and you become like him because you see him as he is. And I'm, I'm reflecting on this past year, and even last night I'm praying. This past week I've been praying and thinking about it. And I, I never want to bring myself up under condemnation because there is no condemnation in Christ. But there are things that the Holy Spirit showed me. And He said, Clay, you did some things well this past year. This went well. You reached some of these goals. This, this, these things happened. The church is doing pretty well. But then there's other things where the Lord's like, you know what? You, you let some lazy, bad habits come into your life, too. You let some things come in there that you should probably deal with here at the beginning of this year moving in. And you know what? I'm thankful for that. Are you? That God will remind us and say, you can get things back on track. You're still my son. You're still my daughter. I've still called you by name. You're still washed in the blood. But there are some things that I'm calling you to so that you can manifest my very life in you in a greater way this year. And so in order to do that, we've got to understand that Jesus is the way. And here's the paradox of Christianity. Salvation is absolutely a free gift. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot work and earn your salvation. It's something that through faith you believe in Christ and he, in, and he imputes righteousness to you and you receive justification and forgiveness of sins. But here's the thing. Salvation is free. Yes, it is. But discipleship is costly. And that's the paradox of Christianity is that this salvation that Jesus offers us is a free gift. But when you are saved, Jesus saves and calls people into a lifestyle of discipleship where they deny themselves and lay down their very lives in order to follow him. You're not a disciple in order to earn salvation. You are a disciple because you are saved and have inherited salvation. And so becoming Jesus followers is so essential and so important. But see, it's not that easy. Even Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, that the narrow, narrow is the gate and difficult the way which leads to life. He's saying, when you follow me, it's not going to be the easiest thing that you've ever done. You may come up and say a prayer, but it's when you get up from the altar and go live your day-to-day -day life on Monday that you're going to face temptation and struggles and hardship. You're going to get discouraged. People are going to make you mad. You're going to want to kill somebody. And you're going to find out that guess what? This way is narrow and it's difficult. It's challenging and few there are who truly find the actual way of following Jesus that ultimately leads to life and life abundant. Because you know that the church nationwide and worldwide is full of people who are Christians who are still living miserable lives, who have not yet found the way. 
who have not yet entered into this place where they're following Jesus, where they're experiencing an abundance of fruit and transformation in their own life. And see, the way of Jesus is not just a transaction made through one prayer, but it's a lifestyle we develop over time by following Jesus and practicing the way of Jesus so that his very life is manifested in us. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, see, it, be, it, it begins with Jesus. And Jesus is the Son of God. We know, we know that He's the Messiah. We know that He's the Christ. We know that He's the Anointed One. But do you know that if you look in the Scripture, what He is referred to more often than not, of 90, 90 times somebody says, hey, Jesus, and then calls Him something. 60 of those 90 times He is called rabbi or teacher. That's what he's called. Because when Jesus shows up on the scene, he shows up in a certain context. And when we understand him as what they called him most, which is rabbi or teacher, it gives us an understanding for the way that he actually called people to live a certain lifestyle. And here's the thing. He would go from town to town. A rabbi was a teacher who would travel from town to town with his yoke. And his yoke was basically his set of teachings that you would learn and follow. And it was their way of interpreting the Torah or the Old Testament. And then you would follow these rabbis and they would teach you. And you remember what Jesus said when he said in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he said this, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was referring to the fact that rabbis went all over the place and they had a yoke. They had a set of teachings. But let me tell you something. Their set of teachings were heavy. They were not light. They were very burdensome because their set of teachings consisted of you following 663 of the Old Testament laws flawlessly. But not only doing that, now you got to follow the little nitpicky rules that they put on top of that. So it's not just that you don't that you keep the Sabbath, but you can't do hardly nothing on the Sabbath. If you sneeze, sneeze and wipe your nose too much on the Sabbath, you've sinned against God. You know what I'm talking about? They just put weird stuff on. And have you ever been a part of a religious system or a church where they just put weird stuff on you? Anybody ever been there? You're like, well, we're here right now, Clay. I mean, eh. <laughs> and here's the thing. He was addressing the religious mindset of that time. You know, one of the things that we often talk about is like, is like, well, then people are just religious and they're just religious and that's just religious. And, and we hear that to, the, to where most of the time, if you hear the word religious, do you think positive or do you think negative? You think negative because you are a product of the 21st century, my friends. You think negative when it comes to the word religion or religious. And what, what do we mean by religious or religion? Now, see, bad religion, what we're really talking about and what I think about, and because I grew up in a mindset, I went to church some and I've been to different churches. And when we think about religion, what we're really thinking about is an external adherence to a bunch of dead rituals where you go to church, you sit in the pew like a dried up sired prune or something like that. And then you just get up all cranky and you walk out the door and you're mean to everybody in the community. Amen. That's what I think of when I think of religion. And that's what I think of when I think of people being religious. That, they, that they, they get caught up in things that don't matter. They're all about going to church, but they treat people like garbage. And ultimately, it's like things like, well, you've got to shave your face. You can't watch TV. You can't do this. And it's just goofy stuff. But at the end of the day, they've got no love in their heart. Right? 
That's what we think of when we think about religion. And that's bad religion, isn't it? And Jesus, Jesus dealt with this religion of his day because they were adding systems onto things and trying to bring us into this place. And there was a, a measure of dead religion going on. And he said, you know what? One of the things you guys do in your bad religion is you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Basically, he was saying, you get nitpicky about things that don't matter. You over here jumping on this dude because he's got tattoos, but you ain't worried about reaching anybody with the gospel yourself. You're trying to make people adhere to rules that don't matter while there are people out here broken and needing to hear about the love of Jesus. He said, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. You get caught up and you cause division about doctrines and things that don't matter when there are people who genuinely need the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says, you know what? Other thing you all do when you're in dead and bad religion is you clean the outside of the cup, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. He said, you go around putting on the right clothes, looking right, fixing your hair the appropriate way, and doing all these. And even when you fast, you do it so people will look at you and say, oh, look at how spiritual he is. He's fasting. It's so funny to me too. You know, the, the three things that Jesus said you should do and do it secretly to your father. Now, don't get me wrong because there are corporate fasts throughout Scripture. And so that's why we do a corporate fast. Because sometimes the church just needs to call people to fast because they ain't going to do it otherwise. Amen. And that's why sometimes you have to call it corporately. But while we're fasting, what I'm not going to do is tell you how I'm fasting, when I'm fasting. I'm not going to go walk up to a, 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 a rank stranger and say, I'm fasting today. I may just walk in up here to El Dorado's, you know what I'm saying, and walk in and, and they'll be like, you need a table? Yeah, there's one, but I'm not going to sit. I'm fasting. See you later. You know, so, so we don't do that, do we? But sometimes we do. And even when we talk about, he talked about prayer, he talked about giving. And one of the things that I know we do, I see so many people that give and give to people who are broken and hurting. And they'll be sitting there taking Facebook photos while they're giving to people. When, when Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left is doing, he's saying you doing all of these external things, but inwardly there's no heart transformation. Your motives are wrong. There's something going on where you, you, you have an outward form of religion, but no true power inwardly. There's been no real change, no transformation. He also said to these guys, he said, you know what you do? You place burdens on people hard to bear and you won't lift one of these burdens with your little finger. And see, this is one of the things that I've, I've been around this, this type of thing where it's like when you go to a church and it's like every like like you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do all. And, and if you don't perform it flawlessly, we'll make you feel like somehow God's mad at you, like somehow God has rejected you, and we ain't going to help you one little bit. The church exists to lead broken and hurting people who are aware that they are sinners into salvation and then lovingly lead them into a relationship, not where they feel condemned every time they mess up, but where they know they can come back to the Father and grow in a healthy relationship and be made holy by the pure one who loves them more than they could ever imagine. And so that's why we ain't going to beat you up all the time. While there is loving correction in the house of God, there must absolutely be loving correction among the people of God. There's a time for rebuke. There's a time for correction, no doubt. But when a religious system begins putting burdens on people and not leading them into freedom, you know you got something bad going on. So when we talk about religion, we're like, okay, yeah, that's bad. We don't want none of that. We, we, we don't want religion. We want relationship is what people say. I, I think I even preached that one time in a sermon and everybody started clapping. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good there, Brother Clay. Praise God. 
We don't want religion, we want relationship. And I agree, I agree that we do not want religion, we want relationship. But here's the danger in the American church today. One, we have re-identified what religion means. And basically we're getting to a point where we're saying we don't want religion, we want relationship. And what that means is I can define for myself what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. I ain't got to go to church, I'm spiritual. I mean, I don't really pray that much, but I pray in my heart. You know what I'm saying? Like there's this thing that me and Jesus got going on. Do you ever read the Bible? No, we don't read the Bible. I mean, that, because, because we think that there's multiple ways and, and Jesus is just kind of one of them, but we still love Jesus and we believe we're saved. And so what we do is we say, I don't want any practices involved in my life. I just want to be a spiritual person because I don't want to be religious. Amen. And what ends up happening is, as Americans, we, we, we label religion as something terrible, and then we don't have any practices, so now we're just not religious. Here's, here's what James says in James 1, 26 and 27. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Basically, he says, if you've got a set of spiritual practices in your life, no matter what you do, you may be fasting the whole 21 days. But at the end of the 21 days, if you still got a problem with gossip and tearing people down, your religion is worthless. Amen. He goes on to say, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So in Scripture, there is actually a pure religion. There's a pure practice. And here's, I want to give you my definition of, of pure Christian religion. Right here it is. Pure Christian religion is the set of practices handed down to us from Christ and His followers throughout the ages in order to know God more intimately and follow Him more faithfully so that Christ Himself is formed in us. I was listening to a song the other day. There's this guy named John Mark Pantana. And he writes some wonderful Christian songs. And I get exactly what he's saying. He writes this song about Jesus. It's essentially a love song to Jesus. And at one point he makes this statement. He says, you are the least religious person that I know. And when I first heard that, I giggled a little bit. Because I said, son, in my heart, I said, I said, John, my friend, Jesus is the most religious person that you know. Because Jesus adhered to a set of practices beyond what you could ever adhere to. The man prayed early before anybody else got up and prayed and he did it religiously. He fasted and abstained from food and he did it religiously. He did it regularly. He went to the temple and was in the temple or in the synagogue every single Sabbath, did not miss, and he did it religiously. He offered up every sacrifice that needed to be offered and he did it religiously. So what am I saying? I'm saying that there is a good set of practices that we don't do in order to put burdens on people, but we give these practices are handed to us as a gift to say, hey, listen, you can read scripture, you can study scripture, you can pray, you can go to church and be in community and fellowship, you can confess your sins to one another and pray for the sick and lift one another up and encourage one another and you can do all of these things and they're a gift to you because what they're going to do is actually make you closer to Jesus and experience Experience true joy and true love and true peace and true freedom. Good religion leads to stronger relationship. Amen. Does that make sense? 
So what I'm trying to say is, is that, yes, there's a bad religion. We don't want to put burdens on people and bring people into bondage and, and, and strain at a gnat and swallow a camel and get caught up in this. But what we do not want to do in saying we're not religious is saying we're going to just throw out all the practices as well. We're not going to try to pray. We're not going to try to fast. We're going to treat the Sabbath or we're going to treat this uh, as uh, meeting together as something that's secondary, not that big of a deal. What I'm telling you is that Jesus was a very religious man, but he was also very spiritual and he flipped the status quo up on its head. But he had a set of practices that he expected his followers to apply to their lives. What he didn't want to do is say, hey, you're saved now. You ain't got to do nothing. Amen. And so I may have lost y'all right there, didn't you? You're like, oh, man, you just tore something down that we did not like. We wanted to use the word religion in a negative sense, Clay. We've been loving using that in the negative sense. But here's, I want you to know, it's Mark 1, verse 16 through 20. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It says in verse 16, And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. And then Mark chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Mark 3, verse 13 through 19. And he went up in the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. And then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Notice that. And that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. One more. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 37. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul. Do you see the pattern there? Jesus never comes up to any of these men and preaches the gospel to them and say, hey, now say this prayer after me and you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven when you die. Even though that's good and we believe that, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, died, resurrected, ascended into heaven, and we tell people everywhere, hey, repent, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved, and you will experience salvation. And yes, one benefit of that is that you will get to go to heaven when you die. Amen. We believe that. But Jesus didn't call anybody into that specific thing. What he did was he was calling them into a way of life. He was saying, follow me, and I will make you a disciple. You will be one of my disciples. He was leading them not just into a prayer, but into a lifestyle. Amen. And I know we all know this, but here's the thing. We miss this as American Christians so much. All we really want is to preach a word to people, have them pray a prayer, baptize them, and just leave it at that. I'm telling you, God is calling us to something far more than that. And if we're going to change generations, if it's going to impact our kids and the generations to come, they've got to have something more than a prayer they prayed in an altar and a water bath that they were dipped in. They've got to have discipleship where their lives are 
transformed and Christ is formed in them and they walk out and they demonstrate it to the world. And that's what we're moving into. And so you see this pattern and he says, come and be my disciple. Disciple in the Hebrew language is a fancy word. It's called Talmudim. Talmudim. It can also be translated a follower or student. But you can't think of a follower like how you follow somebody on Instagram because that's how we think of it, right? I'm following him or they're following me. That's not the kind of following we're talking about. And you don't think about student as like a freshman in college who's taking notes under a professor. The best word probably is an apprentice. A disciple is an apprentice. It's somebody who follows another person day in, day out to learn their trade, what they say, how they think, what they believe, their worldview, and putting their everyday actions and their everyday words into practice so that they become like them. Now, discipleship was not invented by Jesus. There were two rabbis that we know of based on his History Rabbi Hallel had 70 disciples before Jesus. There was another one named Rabbi Akiva who had five, but thousands followed him in Israel. And we know that, like, for example, in Greece, discipleship happened because Plato was a disciple of Socrates. So we know that these things went on. But here's, here's how it kind of got mapped out in the first century in, in, in Jewish, like, like in America, for example, we send people to grade school, they go to middle school, then they go to high school and they learn whatever the state at the particular time the government decides is what they need to learn. Amen. And we have very little influence on that at this point. Uh, but, but they just decide what needs to be learned, whether, whether social skills or anything like that needs to be learned. It doesn't seem like they're very interested in that. We're just trying to help kids pass tests. You know what I'm talking about? And there's a lot of things unleft that the church has to actually come in and teach kids how to be good humans. Amen. And thank God for good teachers who are in our public school systems. and We got a lot of them here. And thank God for you all that are in there shining light and loving kids and showing and demonstrating what it means to be good humans. Amen. But see, in the Hebrew educational system, it was a little bit different because they started out with something that was called the Bet Zephyr, and that was the house of the book is what it's called. So until from like the age you were born and you going into grade school, essentially it's kind of like our grade schools. Until you're 12 years old, you're learning math, you're learning English, you're learning to read and write, you're learning all these things. And, and, when you're t- and by the time you're 12, you will have probably studied and almost memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah. Now, when you're 12 years old, if you're really smart, you'll 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 grab. Now, if you're not so much, if you're a decent student, but not so much, if you're a man, you'll start apprenticing under your dad. You'll learn his trade. You'll become a carpenter or whatever else, and go up under him and become his apprentice. If you're a woman, you'll get married to some guy at that age. Amen. And then and and, and then. If you are a little bit better, there's something called the Bet Talmud, and it's a school built off to the side of the synagogue. So if you're just like a brilliant kid at 12 years old, they're going to send you off to the side of the synagogue. It's the place where Jesus went, where he was, he was talking with all the Pharisees, and they were astonished at his learning. So he would have went into this school, but I don't think that he did because he ended up apprenticing under his own father, which is why he became a carpenter, even though he had the ability to come up under a rabbi. So they would go at the age of 12, if they really had the skills, go up under a rabbi and or go up under a teacher and learn until they're about 13 or 14 or 15. And if they really had the stuff, if they really had the stuff, they would become a Talmudine, 
a disciple of a big rabbi who walked around and moved around and did all these things. So, for example, the Apostle Paul was so brilliant that he became a disciple of a guy named Gamaliel. What that means is that he would literally follow him around for years, learn all of his mannerisms, all of his teachings, everything that he did. And the goal was that he would become a rabbi himself to teach others and raise up disciples after him. And that was the educational system of how you would progress in it. So when Jesus comes on the scene, if you were going to be a disciple, you had three goals. Number one is you're just going to be with your rabbi. Number one, Mark 13, uh, 3 verse 14, Jesus said that they might be with him. Understand that apprenticeship was an all day thing. They had a blessing that they said where they said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. They wanted you to be with him 24 seven, sleep beside him, know where he's at, get up. And, and they wanted you to learn the tone of his voice, his mannerisms, everything about him to follow him. Secondly, if you were going to be a true disciple, you would become like your rabbi. Mark 1.17, it says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now we read that and we think that's just like a cheesy little phrase. Like y'all are fishermen, you're out here catching fish. I'm going to teach you how to catch men. But what it was was actually an idiom in those days that if you were a fisher of men, basically you were like one of the best teachers of your day. You taught so well that you would capture men's minds and imaginations and you would draw them in so that they would say, this man is brilliant. He's got some life issues figured out. I want to follow him. He's a fisher of men. He catches men's minds and imaginations. So when Jesus says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, he's not simply saying, I'm going to teach you how to get people saved. He's saying, I'm going to make you such a good teacher like myself that you will capture men's minds and imaginations and they will want to follow you as well. Right. And so thirdly, you will do what your rabbi did. Mark 13, it says that he sent them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. That was what Jesus was doing. And at some point when they followed Jesus for three years, he says, boys, I want you to go out and do exactly what I'm doing. I want you to not just be like me, not just be with me, but do what I'm doing. Amen. And so you see those three things going out, and the goal was that at some point, if you apprenticed under your rabbi, your teacher, you would be equipped to do what he did, and he would say, now you go out and you make disciples. And man, this is so essential because we know the Great Commission. When you go through Next Steps, one of the things we hit over and over again is that Jesus says, go out and make disciples. But the reason we don't go out and make disciples effectively is because we have not yet set and been with Jesus long enough. Amen. We've not yet developed our own personal relationship with Jesus where the Spirit of God deals with us and in us and works in us and teaches us the ways of Jesus. And we put the ways of Jesus into practice to where it forms us so much that the only thing we know how to do at this point is to go out and lead others in the same way that Jesus has led us. But see, if we're just simply Christians that come to church on Sunday, but yet we're not with Jesus and becoming like Jesus... There's no real desire in our hearts to lead other people to do the same. And so to follow Jesus is to apprentice under Jesus. And this is very simple out of the gate here. But number one, if we're going to apprentice and become a disciple of Jesus, number one, we've got to be with Jesus. Amen. And I'm going to carve some of these out over the next few weeks, but I'm going to be real short with this because the short version of that is how, how do you be with Jesus? And really what this means is that, like even while we're doing this prayer and fasting, I remember in my own life, I had no idea what it meant to be a Christian. I went up and thought, I, I, I grew up thinking that being a Christian literally was a bunch of people that just went to church and you tried your very best to be a better person. And when I tried that, I failed miserably. 
So what I realized based on what I read in Scripture is that I needed to go and I needed to pray to God who is in secret. I needed to fast and and, and deny myself and bring myself before the Lord and learn what it meant to worship. I needed to get in my bedroom or in my closet and kneel before an almighty God and read the scripture and let the scripture have an impact on my heart. And as I'm praying, as I'm reading, as I'm worshiping, as I'm communing with brothers and sisters in Christ, the spirit of God is at work in my heart, changing me. And I'm spending time with Jesus, allowing him to shape my heart. And so we have to carve out time. What it means to be with Jesus is you intentionally are carving out time to spend time in his word, in prayer. And this is why fasting helps so much, because fasting intentionally forces you to cut things off. Let me tell you something. When it's lunchtime and you're starved to death, the only thing you know to do at this point is say, I got to pray. Amen. I got to go spend time with Jesus. And I'm telling you, there is nothing more powerful in your life than saying no to this world, no to your physical cravings and saying, no, right now I need to commune with God. I need to be with Jesus. I need to hear from the spirit of God and let him be at work in my heart and in my mind. So we got to start figuring out ways in John 15. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. And he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And notice this, so you will be my disciples. So his metaphor of living a life with the Spirit is the fact that he is the vine. And if you're going to produce fruit as a branch hanging off the vine, then you have to stay connected to the vine. And this is where my argument in the beginning comes out, is that we can't just say, hey, we don't want religion. No, we need a set of practices that will keep us connected to the vine. You need a set of practices in your life, a set of habits that will keep you connected to the vine. Here's what Dallas Willard said. The first and most basic thing that we can and and must do is keep God before our minds. And this is difficult, isn't it? I remember when I first got saved, man, I would wake up every morning and the first thought that came to my mind was Jesus. The first thought on my mind, and you know you get in a hectic, busy life, the first thought that comes to your mind in our generation because we're discipled by the world, the first thought comes to your mind, I'm going to bet everybody in here, let me check my phone. Amen. Let me check my phone. I'm telling you, we have to reform our minds and renew our minds. And here's what he says, this is our most fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits and not the law of gravity. He's saying they can be broken. You've got some bad habits right now. i got some bad habits right now. But he says, hey, they ain't the law of gravity. You can break bad habits. 
He says, a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, He will become the pole star of our inward being. Let me tell you this. I talk to people about prayer a lot and they'll say, you know, but man, when I pray, I fall asleep. I was talking to Jonathan Runyon the other day. We used to come to the, to the church every night, 9 p.m. We prayed on midnight when we used to go to church together and we'd open the, and he'd fall asleep all the time and I'd wake him up in the pew and, and, and it, we, we were making fun of him about that and talking about that but here's the thing each time you're in prayer and you're distracted it's just another opportunity for you to turn your heart and your affections back to God every time you turn it back you are resetting your mind and it is a sacrifice in which you are tuning yourself and training your mind to set your mind back to God and the more you do it you are training yourself to set your affections toward the one that you love most Say, well, I can't pray well because I get distracted. You have to go through those distractions in order to train yourself to be lost in this one in prayer. And so it takes practice. I ain't saying that it's easy. I'm not saying going through any of these practices is easy. I'm just saying that Jesus said that this is the way. This is the life. It's not easy. It's difficult because it takes daily training and daily practices. If you want to abide in the vine and produce the fruit of love and not just try to be loving, but you really want love and you really want joy, you got to become a man or a woman of prayer. you got to be somebody who will institute the practice of fasting and self-denial. You've got to have somebody that's willing to saturate themselves in the Word. you got to have, you got to become a person that loves Scripture enough that you're not going to be suffice with just listening to me preach it on Sunday. You're going to have to become a person that wants to be in the community of faith, that wants to get in a small group so that they can minister in their spiritual gifts to other people and pray for people and confess your sins to one another and be broken before one another and mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice and have that kind of community and fellowship. You've got to become that kind of person if you want to abide in the vine. Without those practices, you will become a branch that is broken off from the vine and cast away. And you'll be one year down the road saying, you know what, I've been going to church, but but I don't feel any different. I still don't experience love. There's no joy in my heart. You know why? You don't have the practices that keep you connected to the vine. And this is essential. This is so important. It takes practice. And his point is saying it takes practices. And I'm telling you, folks, this is where the money is at. My life was radically transformed because Jesus came after me and he saved my soul. Yes, he did. But I'm telling you, when Jesus saved my soul, I was still in a whole lot of a mess. Because just because you get saved don't mean it's over. He's calling you now into a lifestyle of discipleship. And the real transformation, the real change where you become more like Jesus happens because you spend time with him and you put these practices in your life. Secondly, so if we're going to be with Jesus, secondly, then when we're with Jesus, we're abiding in the vine. We become like Jesus. And this is really sanctification. That's the Bible word for it. Sanctification, becoming holy, becoming like Christ, or it's spiritual formation. And spiritual formation, let me give you this definition. Spiritual formation for the Christian is the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. Let me tell you something. If you're going to be formed spiritually in our world, and I know, let me tell you something, I know this. This is why a lot of times when we're praying and thinking about the programs we're going to do in our church and all the things that we're going to do, like we're, we're, th- we're trying to think thoughtfully because we want to do a lot without 
destroying people and wearing people out. But here's what we've come to understand, that if discipleship does not take place in the home, we're not going to grow spiritually. We've come to that realization as a church because we got so many kids and everybody who's got kids and families knows you are busy. You're running the ball games. You're t- cleaning up diapers. You got kids crying. You got sleeping habits that you got to meet and all of these things. And we're trying to trying to grow people spiritually. I'm telling you, if what we teach on Sunday does not move over into the home where you're praying in the home, you're fasting in the home, you're worshiping in the home, you're studying scripture in the home, then you will not experience this sanctification, this transformation. But see what you You've got to do in order for true spiritual formation to happen. You've got to learn to unplug from the busyness of this world. You can become so busy that you convince yourself you've got no time for these practices. A lie from the devil. I believe it was John Piper that said the good, the only good thing about Facebook will be on the day of judgment that it will offer proof that lack of spiritual formation was not because people did not have time to pray. You're going to find out you was on Facebook five hours a day, and I bet you a dollar you could have spent one of them hours in prayer. So it's not that we don't have time. It's that we have become so distracted that we do not know how to manage our time. We don't know how to manage our time to be true followers of Jesus. This is why Jesus himself, I know he didn't have kids, probably very intentionally and purposefully because he had a, he had a plan. And that man had kids, it would have probably hindered a little bit. I mean, I'm just kidding. God gives us kids because we're going to raise them up, son, and we're going to have a generation that is strong and full of the Holy Spirit. Our plan goes beyond ourselves. But my point is this, that Jesus had a very intentional plan, and you even see him, what would he do? He would, depart, he would move away from people to go and pray to spend time alone, to get away and spend time and be with God so that he would understand his plan and his calling. And see, how do we do this? How do we become like him? It takes practice within a community. This is why when we pray and fast together, we have these prayer meetings together, we launch into small groups. The people who are in community, people I know people even in our church recently that have gone through such difficult things and the ones that are connected to a small group Their small group gathers around them, loves them, strengthens them, encourages them, helps me pastor them. And because they're involved in that, right, they're growing spiritually. When you're planted and you're rooted in the system and practices of God, even your hardest times will cause you to bear fruit. But when you go through hard times and you're not rooted and connected in these practices, It can cause you to fall away. It can cause you to weaken. It can cause you to doubt. It can cause you to question. So these practices take place in community. And thirdly, lastly, we do what Jesus did. So the goal of apprenticeship was to carry on your master's work. You're going to be with your master, Jesus. You're going to become like your master, Jesus. And ultimately, you are going to begin to do what your master, Jesus, did and practice what he did. Now, I went through the the Gospels, and I could basically break down Jesus' kingdom work into about 10 categories. And here's the thing. This is not just like social activity. This is not just, this is Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Son of God, bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. This is a supernatural thing that we're talking about that he's practicing. But here, if you look at Jesus' kingdom work, number one, the thing that he did was he preached the gospel. 
He went out and he told people, look, and, and, and he's talking about the good news. Obviously, he was going to come and die for our sins that we could have eternal life. We are to do that same thing. We're to preach the gospel. We are to teach the way. That's what I'm doing this morning. I'm teaching you a way that ultimately, thank God you're saved and you, your sins have been washed clean and you've got eternal life. I thank God for that. But let me tell you something. There's something more. There is a way of life where we follow Jesus and we learn his system of behavior. We follow him and we learn this and it leads to life. Thirdly, healing the sick. Now, some of you, whatever your theology may be on healing and all that, let me tell you something. You would be hard, have a hard time reading the New Testament and not deciding that at the very least God has called you to pray for the sick. At the very least. Number four, casting out demons. I would say the same thing about that. Number five, eating and drinking with people far from God. This was a practice of Jesus. Number six, doing justice. Those who were oppressed, those who were hurting, Jesus sought justice in those areas. Number seven, peacemaking, forgiving and loving your enemies. Eight, praying and fasting. Nine, prophesying. And ten, standing up against religious and political corruption. These are the things that Jesus did. These were his practices. These were the things that he did out of his relationship with the Father. The Holy Spirit flowed through him to do these practices in life. And so when you look at this, let me tell you something. Following Jesus is not just a hobby. If you say, well, I love Jesus and I also like golf. You know what I'm saying? That ain't going to work out that well. Because following Jesus, if it's only a hobby, it's going to become burdensome and it's going to become hard. But if following Jesus is your reason for living, and I'm not telling you, you got to quit your job. In your job, where you're at, in your family, you can follow Jesus. And I'm not saying that you're going to be able to do all these things all at once. You're not. This is a lifetime of practice. There's so many things in my life right now that even as a pastor, when I look at it, I'm like, Lord, I can't even believe you've allowed me to pastor people and preach to them. My life is a mess. I still need you so much, God. But can I tell you that we're all on this level. We all need Jesus. We need to be with him. We need to become like him and we need to learn how to do what he did. And his spirit at work in us is going to bring us to that. In Mark 8, 34, it says he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now notice again, the first invitation of Jesus is to become a disciple and not a Christian. Do you know that in the New Testament, the word Christian is used three times and it's used in a negative light. But in the New Testament, the word disciple is used 268 times and is the most used word for what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. So what's the difference between a Christian and a disciple? A Christian is essentially somebody who just sort of believes, yeah, I believe Jesus was a man, I believe he died, I believe he was resurrected on the third day, and I go to church on occasion. But a disciple is somebody who says, Jesus is my reason for living, and I'm choosing to follow him, and I'm choosing to learn these practices. It may take me a while. He's gracious to us. He gives us all a starting point, but we're going to follow him. Now, I want to give you a stat real quick, and you're not going to like this stat. But nationwide, 76% down to 65% in just the last few years, since this whole pandemic hit and everything, I don't know what happened, but people fell away from God. And not only that, cultural Christianity is dying in America, which means that it's not as cool as it used to be to say you were a Christian. You realize that? 
So used to, it was just cool to say you're a Christian in America. So people would say, I'm a Christian, yeah, I believe. But now it's not even cool anymore, so people are not saying they are. So it's dropped in just the last five years to 65% of Americans say, hey, I'm a Christian. That's still a pretty high number, isn't it? But the same people who did this study actually asked people questions about the kingdom work that I just listed to you based on the practices in their life. Hey, would you forgive this person if they did this to you? Hey, do you find yourself loving your enemies very often or do you not like your enemies that much? Do you practice a lifestyle of prayer? Have you ever fasted? Do you give to the poor? Do you visit those who are in prison? These types of questions, they ask a plethora of these and of the practices, people actually following Jesus based on their practice and way of life was more around 6%. So what that means is that 65% say we're Christians, 6% of us actually practice the way of Jesus, which means that 59% of Americans only say they are Christians but aren't truly following Jesus. Is that an accurate stat? I don't know. It sounds to me like it probably is because I think when you look at the American church in a more broader sense, this this is kind of where we're at. We're at this place where we feel good about comfortable religion about coming to church, labeling ourselves Christian. We're thankful for our salvation, but as far as putting the practices into place to allow Jesus to do a deep work in our heart, man, that's a little bit difficult. We're not sure if we want that. Now in Mark, you've got two groups of people. You've got the disciples and you've got the crowds. And really, they put those two at at, at odds with each other on purpose because he's trying to say, are you just a face in the crowd or are you somebody who has committed their lives to denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Jesus? One or the other. Dallas Wheeler, let me quote him one more time. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession of, or culture... Now notice this. He says this is the greatest issue facing our world today. Most of us would say, well, coronavirus is the greatest issue facing our world today. Or, or maybe it's sex trafficking. Maybe it's just the political system at large. Maybe, that's the, maybe it's global warming. But he says, no, the greatest issue facing the world today is that whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples... Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from Him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existing, existence. He's not looking for somebody to just convert to Christianity. He is looking for you to get so connected to the vine through spiritual practices that you're so filled with the Spirit of God that everywhere you go, the kingdom of heaven breaks out among you that you bring transformation to your family. You bring transformation to your workplace. And guess what? Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple. That would be unheard of for somebody to say, whoever wants to be, because they only called the ones that they wanted. Jesus called some of the worst dudes you could ever pick to be his disciple. And that gives me hope because I remember when Jesus called me in my sin and in my brokenness and in my mess and he offered me a gift of spiritual practices to say, Clay, if you will seek me with your whole heart, if you will pray, if you will fast, if you will study the word of God and let it get in your heart, I will release my spirit on the inside of you and I will transform your life from the inside out. And the best news is, is that Jesus is still not done with me yet. Amen. 
He's doing something in all of us. He wants to do something in all of us. And I'm telling you, as hard as this message has sounded and, and, and as strong as it has sounded, at the end of the day, this is good news. Because we have the ability to say, hey, we're going to respond to Jesus. He said, whoever will come and be my disciple, you can be like me. When I started doing this thing, folks, I did not have it figured out. Remember the first time I fasted ever, it was one of the worst days of my life. You know what I'm talking about? And as soon as it was over at midnight, I ate something. But God started doing a work in me. And I'm telling you, when you offer your little bit to God, He'll do a lot in your life. I want to be, when I think about the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, I want to be the type of person who doesn't just look at it and say, well, man, that's a little bit hard, that's a little bit difficult. I'll try my best to not worry. Now, I want to be so inwardly transformed that it comes natural to me to trust God and not worry. Well, I'll try my best to forgive those who hurt me. Now, I don't want to try my best. I want to be so internally transformed that it's my natural response from Christ within to forgive those who have hurt me. That's what he's calling us to, to an internal transformation where Christ is formed in us. I'm going to read two, two more scriptures and a quote, and I'm done this morning. I know it's been long, but if we're going to go into deep discipleship, right, I've got to start teaching like two hours every Sunday. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh. Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside, see, Jesus takes the Sermon on the Mount, which is challenging, but he bookends it with two ideas. He said, anybody who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about practice. You know how Allen Iverson said that time, we're talking about practice. He didn't, want, he didn't think practice was needed. I'm telling you, practice is necessary. Matthew 7, 24 through 27, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus assumes in the Sermon on the Mount that your life is going to be messy. He assumes, guess what, that you're going to have some enemies, that some people are going to hurt you, that you may even get sued, that you're going to want money and you're going to want clothes and you're going to worry yourself sick about these things. He assumes that most of y'all are going to probably lust after somebody else. He assumes that life is going to be messy, but he says you can begin to practice a certain way of life where the Spirit of God will begin to move in your heart and you will be so internally transformed that this will become a way of life for you and it will not be burdensome. It will be freeing and it will be natural. I should not read the Sermon on the Mount and say, man, that's just too hard. I can't do it. You can't do it. But if you put these things into practice and allow the Spirit of God to move through you, Christ in you will perform these actions through your life. You will become a person who exhibits the kingdom of God and puts it on display. How about one last quote? quote here, and he may get mad at me, but this is from the theologian and coach, Anthony Hibbard. I sent him a message. I was over here, I was over here playing basketball with some of these boys from OBI the other day, and I did, I, got, I mean, I did pretty good for like the first three to five minutes. Like, I, you know, my jumper was working. I hit a couple threes on them. You know, I was, I was feeling good. I kind of backed up. 
But then I started to play defense because these guys were taking me to the rack. <clears throat> and I got winded quick, y'all. And then once I'm winded, I lose my legs. My jump shot ain't working. You know why? Because I hadn't been practicing. I know people, we laugh about it. We say the only reason I actually pastor this church is because I got a gym over there and I'm trying to get in a D-League. And every Monday I come in, I work out. Eight hours a day, I'm in a gym shooting basketball. That's a joke. But here's what he says. I said, I said man, what happens if y'all don't practice? Here's what he said. I love it. He said, through the process of consistent practice, we introduce proper techniques and skills to be successful. After introduction, it's important for players to repeat the skill until it becomes a habit. So that under extreme circumstances or pressure, we hope they can apply that skill or technique and be successful. No practice or less practice leads to regression. And when the lights come on, it's obvious who has been working or practicing and who's not. And I thought, man, you apply that to your spiritual life. When the lights come on, it's obvious who has developed a lifestyle of prayer, who has developed a lifestyle of fasting and self-denial, who has become a person of the Word, who knows the Word of God, who loves worship, who loves communion with the saints and fellowship with the saints and is willing to visit the sick and, and visit those that are in prison or those that are afflicted and, and reaching out to the broken and feeding the need. And who, doing all these things, it's obvious when that practice has been there because these people love purely. It flows out of them. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, an apparent change. And see, this is what Jesus is calling us into. Wherever you're at this morning, you don't know Jesus. It's a perfect time. Never let me downplay the fact that you can respond to Jesus. You can say a prayer. You can repent and choose to follow him and salvation will happen in your life. But just know that if you have been saved, he's calling you to something deeper, a lifestyle of practice. And you can begin to implement these things in your life and he will make you like him. You will do what he did. Amen. I want you to bow your heads just where you're at. Father, we just we, we thank you that at the beginning of this year, God, this is, a, this is a lot to take in because we don't have the willpower or the strength within, our, within ourselves to say, Lord, we're going to commit ourselves on this deep of a level. But Holy Spirit, I believe that you can take this word and you can plant it in our hearts this morning. That not only would we come to you in repentance and say, Lord Jesus, we believe you. We believe that you died on the cross for our sins. That you were raised again from the dead on the third day. And based on that, God, our faith in that causes us to have salvation and have eternal life. And know that we are forgiven of our sins. But Lord Jesus, not only that, we believe that you've given us the Holy Spirit. And Lord God, that you desire to produce good works in us. And so we respond to that grace by saying, Holy Spirit, help us to put these practices into place so that we can be with you, Jesus. We can become more like you, Jesus. And we can begin to do what you did and see our families transformed, see our lives transformed, and see our community transformed for the kingdom of God. Lord, pour out your spirit on every person here this morning and lead us into a deeper relationship with you this year. We thank you for it. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to worship. We're going to sing one song together here. If you need prayer for anything, please come forward. You can pray at this altar. I'm, telling you, I'm going to tell you something, folks. A good practice, if you've not done it, is to come in here on Sunday morning and be ready to worship. And secondly, a good practice, whether you kneel at your seat 
or whether you come around this altar and kneel, when you kneel before God, you're just simply saying, Lord, I'm submitting myself to you. Whether it looks weird on the outside or not, I'm not going to say, well, I don't need to be a religious person. I'll just pray in my heart. No, sometimes we need to respond to God in a physical way that lets Him know, Lord, we mean business. We want you. We need you. We're crying out to you, God. We need more of you. A physical response is often the way that activates the Spirit of God in our lives. So I just want you, however you feel led, to respond to the Lord this morning. Thank you, God.